And Ed told a story. He was down at the Bollinger Hotel, which had burned down years ago. And he was doing this talk with his back to the window. And he had this big board and he was writing all, showing charts. And, and all the men had to come in and, you know, maybe they'd been sent, they'd been sent by the court to have to have to go through this class. So he kept wondering why the guys were looking around him, not at him, but around him. There was a prostitute on the landing, the fire escape landing, and she was doing a strip tease. This week on Old Spiral Podcast, we welcome back author, educator, local historian, and the wonderful person that is Stephen Branting. Steve has done extensive research on the history of the Lewis Clark Valley, and during his investigations, he has written multiple books about the place we call home. Some of these include Hidden History of Lewiston, Idaho, Historic Firsts of Lewiston, Idaho, Lost Lewiston, Idaho, and Wicked Lewiston, A Sinful Century. Throughout all of these ventures, Steve also manages the Facebook page Historic Lewiston, Idaho, which is full of photos and stories from a bygone era of our valley, and gives lectures on the fascinating information that he studies. Today we talk with Steve about his book, Wicked Lewiston, and the sordid legacy of Lewiston's early days. Welcome to the show, everyone. Today we are happily joined by Stephen Branting, the author of many books, um, one of which we're going to discuss here today, which is... Wicked Lewiston, yeah. A Sinful Century. It's a great book um, in which Steve uh, outlines a bunch of uh, really crazy and harrowing st uh, stories and tales about uh, Lewiston, Idaho. So, Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you for asking me back. I enjoy it. Absolutely. We uh, we, we got great feedback on our last episode with you. So. Well, thank you. Yeah. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the book, uh, maybe how you got interested in making it or why, and uh, uh, kind of what's what's in it. Well, I'd always uh, been, I'd been writing books for a long time, magazine articles and newspaper things, and people were always bringing up, well, have you ever heard that story? Uh, you know, that, that kind of thing. And what about the prostitution, the corruption, you know, the things that just crop up in a town's history. Mm -hmm. So I thought to myself, well, if I write a book, maybe I'll answer a few of those questions, but I ended up finding more stories than anybody even knew about. That was the thing. People said, Oh, did that happen? I'd go in and tell my wife, you know what I just story, I just found that she said, Oh, you're kidding. <laughs> no, 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 that's actually what happened most people realize that my books are not one book it's not like a, a John le Carre died today you know the great writer of spy stories spy who came in from the cold I, I, they're not long narratives they're really kind of capsulated stories that may go on for 8 to 10 pages with photographs and I kind of bring a close to it and then I go to another one so you can see how I really am a magazine article writer you know, for journals and, and peer reviews. You write an article of eight to 10,000 words, and you, you make a case, you thoroughly document it, 
And so I turned that as a way of putting books together. I'll write a number of articles that sometimes won't get published, but I'll put them away, and they're really good articles. I just don't <laughs> find a magazine for them. I've got one that's up for publication in, in the Washington State Historical Society about a gal who came here who was the first woman to be a professor at Eastern Washington University in the 1880s. Oh, that's very cool. There and died here in childbirth. Oh. And her headstone is in the cemetery here in Normal Hill. So that's how these books evolve. They're stories, articles, snippets, uh, vignettes is a good word for it. And when you put them all together, they kind of cluster around a central theme. That's right. Well, speaking of uh, uh, mystery stories, I noticed that you do a, a little bit of detective work in some of the unsolved cases. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think w- you have little quotes at the beginning of each chapter, and I believe there was yes. one by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Yes. And so yeah. are you a big mystery fan and, and a Sherlock well, Holmes I, fan? Well, I, I love the new Sherlock series on PBS with uh, Cumberbatch. Oh, it's great. Oh, it's oh, fantastic. The updates are so, uh, to me, they're so cl- they're clear in terms of making that jump from the 19th century to the 21st century. I would just thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy it. I, I hope, but I don't think they're going to, but I would thoroughly hope they'd make more of those. And oh. I was a big Poirot fan. Oh, David Suchet. I watched them all. I've seen them all. <laughs> oh. Yeah, I've read um, most of the Sherlock Holmes series, for, and it, it, they're really entertaining. And, and this book yes, was really entertaining as well. I do that on occasion. I've done, not done it in every book, but when I got to this book, I thought, you know, let's kind of look at a theme for this this part of the book, and uh, about people and some of the, some of the quotes that are so adept and they're so appropriate for what people had done to themselves. That's they right. They really That's did right. bring their own downfall. Oh, they did. I think one of the last ones that I was reading was the uh, postmaster who fundamentally changed oh, yeah. the way that the government uh-huh. uses its money system. Yeah. When yeah. I was researching that, I was in Victoria. I went to Victoria, British Columbia. My wife is from there. So I <clears throat> kind of arranged that we were going to go up to visit family. So I arranged with a friend of mine who is the uh, past president of the Friends of the Archives. And so he got me into the archives. And we got into the the photographs and the documentation came from Victoria. They were surprised. It was really surprising them that there was a link between Louis and Ido and Victoria, British Columbia because of a postmaster. Yeah. <laughs> now, I should explain to people what, what was the crime. Well, at the time, people were starting to use postal money orders. But what would happen is he figured out a way, I'll write a postal money order to someone who is in another town and ask them to just go ahead and cash it and send it back to me and I'll make sure they get the money. Well, it was all a scam because when the money came back, guess who pocketed it? The postmaster, okay? His last name was Hibbs. Well, he absconds with the money, which was a serious amount of money, and heads up to British Columbia and goes up the Fraser River. And they finally catch him up by Nelson and take him back to Victoria and throw him into old Bastion Square Jail and extradite him. So this is a, they started the extradition treaties between the United States and Canada were really kind of reformed and modified based on this case because it was an unusual case. He comes back to Lewiston. And a jury of his peers acquits him. <laughs> wow. <laughs> because they could, because the, what happened was the government, not thinking it through very well, charged him with forgery. But you can't forge the name of a fictitious person. He got off. 
his attorney got him on. And he stayed in the community for another 15 years. He was still here in the community. You know, nice. You know, the family was nice. The kids went to school. Nobody even thought anything about it. They moved away and became a mining engineer. Well, just the way things were done. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. That's crazy. So when you find these um, stories, is that kind of what starts as your source material? Is it something that people bring up to you and then from there it snowballs? Or how do you how do you go about tracking down your sources for these different stories? Well, I have to tell you, I have some stories that I can't document yet. I've been told the stories, but I can't verify them, so I'm not going to write them yet. Mm-hmm. But other ones, I'll get into old newspapers. I'll get into the, I'll go to the Library of Congress. They, they're digitizing millions of pages. And so I will get in and looking for a whole set of keywords. Once you get your set of keywords really strongly built, then you can begin manipulating those keywords for, for online searches. And sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll be come up a little dry, and I'll say, okay, let me look at this again. Uh, is there another way of spelling the person's first name? And all of a sudden, oh, they misspelled the guy's name, and here's the whole story. That happens. Or is there a source? Was there another, was there another jurisdiction involved? Like Victoria. Once I got to Victoria, they just said, oh, my goodness, yes. We have a picture of the judge that extradited him, and we got the paperwork mm-hmm. on it. And I'm going, and I had the guy who arrested him, even. That's a nice portrait. Yeah. You found it in the book. had the beautiful. I, yeah, he did. <laughs> up there and they just didn't make the I had made the connection they hadn't and all of a sudden we were talking and that article got reprinted in Orca magazine which is a big magazine British Columbia they got a hold of me said we heard you wrote a story about a postmaster that came to Victoria and got jailed I said sure did they said would you like can we publish it for you I said sure why not so we had a little fun with that but it's it's a matter of good source you've got to have good primary sources now one thing you noticed in the book that there are no footnotes, right? No endnotes. And that was basically the publisher. When I write an, a magazine article, uh, you will find lots of endnotes. But in, in, in what we would call, well, let's see, how, how would you, uh, people who are lo- interested in general history, you're not going to overload people with footnotes and endnotes. That, that's academic. So I have all the re- references. So what I'll do is I'll write the whole article with everything in it every footnote, every annotation, and then I'll go back and pair it out, carve it out for a magazine article for whatever journal it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because you have articles and and stuff all the way back east. I mean, there's stuff mm-hmm. from Harlem and, and St. Louis and all these places. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The references come in. Sometimes I, the article I wrote for the Historical Society in Washington as like, it's like five pages of just endnotes, <laughs> uh, making sure it's documented. And the reason for documentation is quite simple. <clears throat> if I write an article, I'm not going to be the last person to read it or use it as a source. And the person who may use it as a source, let's say I die tomorrow and five years from now, somebody needs that article. They're going to have to redo it completely if I don't give them a place to go. Right. Well, so when I have a young historian, I have a couple of them now who are I'm mentoring, and they're writing uh, for publication. I'll seed information or documents, PDFs of old newspapers or magazines or photographs, and who the credit to. So I kind of get them started because I've learned these over the years. You know, I'm 73 years old tomorrow. I've learned a lot since oh. I was a college. Well, happy early birthday. Well, I don't know. 
on field tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will be a prime number. Oh, that's yeah, you know that. there we I go. Will be a prime <laughs> well, I mean, you're definitely a uh, a great resource for the valley. It's impressive how much work you've done and how important it is to this area. Um, one thing that I kind of wanted to talk about was the beginnings of the Lewiston Police Force. Oh, because yes. <laughs> uh, one of the interesting things I read was back in the early or the late 1800s, there wasn't really any formal training, and uh-huh. a lot of the laws were just kind of enforced kind of when they wanted to be, either by uh-huh. the city council or the police force. Right. So could you talk about kind of how the, the Lewiston police force actually began? Well, you're starting, the very first marshal was appointed by the Washington Territorial Legislature. And his uh, his name was Frederick Schwatka. And it was a pioneer of Oregon and came over. We have I have fortunately run down a photograph of him. I gave it to the police chief to put it in the police department because here's 1861. And then uh, in the, we, the city starts and we have a, there is a mention in a newspaper in Walla Walla that there was a constable in town in 1861. And then it just kind of goes clear, it, it, too big. But in 1863, when the Washington State Legislature uh, incorporated the city, originally the city was incorporated in Washington. It was Lewiston, Washington. Mm. And then the Idaho Territory was created, and it was reincorporated in Idaho. But in the first incorporation, Frederick Schwatka was named the first marshal. So that was kind of governmental. But the marshals were typically hired by the city councils, and that put them at a distinct disadvantage because it became became very political. And marshals didn't last but one or two years. It's rare to see anybody who was a city marshal for four or five years. That's very rare. Up until 1901, and then we started getting police chiefs. But that was political, too, because the police chiefs could get in all kinds of shenanigans. There were cases, one of the cases was Leslie Porter, L.A. Porter. Okay. The Porter Ranch used to be out where, where Potlatch is. Huge. His, his home was 22 rooms. Holy cow. He had his own rail spur. And the high school kids used to go pick berries and stuff and produce for him for all the restaurants and groceries and Lewiston. Well, Porter got on the bad side of some city councilmen. And the police chief set him up. They sent a, a local da- uh, a dancer... She can't, went to Mr. Porter used to stay at his his hotel. It wasn't a hotel; it was a, a building. But he had an apartment there, and she came to his door and she said, "Oh, Mr. Porter, I'm not feeling very well." And she's got her negligee on, you know, her peignoir, and she comes in and and she she says, "Well, come and sit down. I'll see if I can get something for you." Well, as these guys back her, and she play, gets herself all kind of get ready to go and kind of gives the, the sign, and then come the police, you know, and they arrest him <clears> on <throat> pro, prostitution, you know bringing in a prostitute. Well, it was all set up. They were just trying to get back at it. Well, L.A. Porter got the last laugh. I think I may have mentioned the book. Because when Weyerhaeuser came in, they wanted to buy that property. And Porter stuck it to them. Big time. Yeah, he, he this property. He, they had to pay through the nose to get that property where Clearwater Papers. That was a whole town out there. It was called Gurney, Idaho. And the little there was a little Catholic church, which is still there. You go out to the animal shelter, the old one. They're going to build a new one. But the old animal shelter, you're on, you're on Mill Road, and you take that right, go up to the animal shelter. There's a church sitting there. That was a Catholic church. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was it was built in, right after the First World War. Big community. It was called Little Italy. 
for a long time. That's what I knew as a boy. That's where the Italian kids lived. They had all the Perinos and uh, Dwight Dwight Church, who was the pa- Paisano. You know, it looks like he was athletic director and football coach. And he won like 2,000 games in the Twins. I mean, if you're my age, Dwight Church was just a legend you know, for a coach. But he was from he was from there. Yeah, and there's there's some of that in the book, a little mention of Little Italy and all that. Little Italy, yeah. And it was a separate community. That was not part of the city at all. you got to remember, the Orchards wasn't part of the city until 1969. Hmm. So, you know, you're too young to know that, but I remember how about the fight over that one was something else. That's still, people are pretty raw over that one. Yeah, there I'll was bring it little, up on Facebook. Somebody will say something. Oh, they shouldn't have done that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was Little Italy, and there was a Chinatown. Yes, Chinatown was down on First Street, where the Lewis Clark Hotel is today, where Sunoco, uh, what is it, Boomers or something? There's a yeah, something around that. That's all. That was all Chinatown. Hmm. Well, you mentioned also that um, Lewiston police officers kind of died a lot in the line of duty. Five have died. Five of yeah. them. Yeah, that's the most of any city in Idaho. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's the most to die in uh, while in service. Right. You know, not not die in bed or a heart attack. They they actually died while on the job. Huh. Yeah, that's crazy. It was kind of a, well, not necessarily lawless exactly because there were laws, but <laughs> maybe oh, yeah. they weren't quite enforced as much as they should have been. Well, there was there was a number of uh, shooting going on. I told the story on Facebook of. A guy, a little guy that came, he wasn't originally from here, but he visited Lewiston a lot of times. One time he came into Lewiston, and he and another guy got into an argument. And so the trick was they would both they would both take the other's hand, and the other in their other hand they held a pistol. And the idea was when they, on the count of three, they'd start shooting. They had to hold on to each other's hand. And when seven shots were fired, then neither one of them was killed, but they got wounded pretty well. It was, <laughs> there could be some real shootouts in town. Huh. So... Have you have you had to do much traveling to track some of these stories down, or are a lot of the resources kind of here in the valley, or or things that you can you can do kind of correspondence to to learn about? I love the internet. I love email and texting. The things that used to take me weeks to get an, a, a a letter back saying sorry we don't have this. <laughs> I don't do that anymore. Right. I give you an example. Uh, the other day, I was working on this photo photo collection, okay, catalog, you know, long, lot of work, very detailed work. And I was reading along. Uh, there was a minister who was the rector at the Episcopal Church on 8th Street, which is the church of the Nativity, 8th and 8th. His name was David James Watson Somerville. And Somerville had come from Ireland and had trained for the ministry in Minnesota and come to Lewiston. He was here for a number of years. He was here for 25 years. He was killed in a car accident in December of 1929. He stepped off the curb down where the Temple Theater is today, uh, 800 block, and stepped right in the path of a little pickup truck. Couldn't avoid it. And it didn't hit him. And the guy hit him, but he wasn't going very fast, 15. But it threw Somerville back over the curb and struck his head in the curb and never never regained consciousness. So here's Somerville in this picture album. Now, follow this. This may sound a little long, but there is something to it. You never know what you're going to find. I was working on Somerville, and his son's name was Ansley. A-N-N-E-S-L-E-Y. Very unusual name. So I thought, okay, let me follow up, because here's the picture of the boy in the thing. Lived here 
graduate from Lewiston High School, 1914, you follow up on these pictures. You're going to annotate. It's explained to people. So they're not lost again. See, they've been lost. Don't lose them again. So you thoroughly annotate. Well, so when I put in Ansley Somerville, I kept getting back the wrong results. The results I was getting back was a member of parliament who was the MP for Windsor, England for 20 years, from 1922 to 42. He was knighted by George VI in 1939. So it was Sir Ansley Somerville. I thought to myself, how can the, how could two people have the name Ansley Somerville? <laughs> Turns out that Reverend James, uh, David James Watson Somerville, the rector, came to the United States. He was the younger brother. And you know, younger brothers in England didn't get the inheritance. So they typically went to the army or they went into the ministry. Okay. So who was David James Watson Somerville's older brother? It was Ansley Ashworth Somerville, the member of parliament. Wow. <laughs> so the minister in Lewiston who married Lillian and Walt Disney, just a block from my home here on 3rd Street, his house still stands. He marries the Disneys. He's still in the car accident. His brother became Sir Somerville. Oh, wow. So how would you know that? So I thought, okay, what am I going to do? He was the MP for Windsor, England. Okay, got that point? I get to go a hold of the Windsor Historical Society in England by email. Now, you see, I came back to the point. A day later, they get back to me because there's eight hours different. They said, Mr. Branding, we can't recognize that name. I said, are you sure? Ansley Somerville was your MP for 20 years. They said, we don't have any record. Now, this is the town that was represented by Ansley Somerville. That's like Lewiston not knowing its own uh, senator. All right? So I thought, all right, there's one other way. He taught at Eton College. You know, the, 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 uh, where the, the British Empire was won on the, play, the playgrounds, Eton, you know. I get a hold of Eton. They got back to me the next day with a portrait of him. Mr. Brandon, here's a picture of him. We found it for you. Uh, if you want to publish it, just let us know, and we'll get the paperwork for you. And it just happened within a few hours, where it would have taken weeks to do before. So to come back to your question, that's my answer. You use technology, because a lot of stuff has been digitized. It's easy to search. You're not looking at a transcription. You're looking at the actual documents that have been scanned in. Or you say, okay, where'd the person live? Get a hold of the historical society, the genealogical society, the museum, whatever it is. Contact somebody and get a network started. And that's how it works. Hmm. Have you ever considered making like a armchair uh, cheat sheet or guide for those that, that would like to become amateur historians? Uh, what, I, what I do is like I mentor. If you want to do an article, you'll say, oh, Ms. Ray, I want to do this article for something. I'm thinking of doing it. I say, okay. Let me point you in the right direction. Here's some links for you. This is going to get the baseline down. You're going to be able to frame this out and structure it. Then I'm going to tell you, the next step is I'm going to say, you need photographs? Okay, now let me show you where to go get these photographs. And they'll, you'll be able to arrange them for you. So that's how, that's how you, it's not enough for me just to write it down. Because I'm not sure how well they can practice. I've got to watch them do it. Right. Stand over their shoulders, so to speak. Say, yeah, that's it. Okay, you're right on track. No. You're going to be far afield. You're going to get lost over here. Come back over here. So, and I learned it by, well, I was trained as a historian. Sure. I have to say, 
I was trained, my undergraduate work was very heavy. I had two majors in, in my undergraduate work. I, I had a 50 credit major in English literature and a 50 credit major in uh, European and American history. So I had really thorough training. Then went away to be a teacher of gifted children, which I could still dabble in history, but it wasn't like when I got near to my retirement, I went for the last five years into work in Lewis and Clark. And that brought me back kind of full stream to research one field work. Gotcha. So that, that's where it is. I, I just tried to, I like to mentor, you know, get some other people working on it. I can't do this forever. I don't want to do it forever. I mean, it keeps my brain active, but after, after a while, it gets pretty tiring. Sure. sure. Anyway, yeah. You wouldn't want to, you wouldn't want to talk do podcasts all day would you <laughs> well not all day not, you know. not all day um they're fun, and, they're fun to do but they're fun to do encapsulated right they, yeah you know, they, they hype you all up but you know it's like anything else when you, when i finish a book i feel let down you're like uh, what do you do now and i tell my <laughs> wife well i'll never do another book I tell her I first <laughs> and i you know i keep writing them i don't know i don't think i'm going to know another book i'd be pretty um Somebody had to make me an awful good offer to do that. <laughs> well, I got to imagine, you know, there's a sort of sense of adventure and the thrill of getting all these pieces together to, to oh, form yeah. your puzzle and then and, uh, and and move forward. I mean, I, I enjoyed writing certain research stuff for my undergraduate degree, sure. and I'm sure Brian did at times too. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I definitely understand it is a lot of work. It is a lot of intention. Uh-huh. It's a lot of focus. And, um, Somebody's going to come up with a, a story I can't refuse. Right. That's what's going to happen. <laughs> or you'll it's come like, across one yourself. <laughs> yeah, it's like Margaret Hardy. You know, I couldn't leave that. Yeah, you know, I wrote the book, and I couldn't leave the story alone. I just couldn't. It just nagged at me for two years, and so I had to get two court orders to, to finish off the story. I finally got those, and finally made sense out of it. So. Yeah. Well, I mentioned, or I, uh, I saw a quote from the book. And it was, uh, Lewiston City Council meetings have been known at times to become contentious, dysfunctional, and obstructive. Oh, uh, yeah. And it seems like some things never really change. No. Well, they, I, I have to admit, they haven't been quite as bad as Clarkson, because I don't know if you remember this. You were quite young, probably. And they had a councilman in Clarkson. They had to, uh, they had to mace him. Oh, man, I don't remember that. He got, he, got, he got so bad that they, the police came over and pepper sprayed him. <laughs> It's on film. There's a film of it too. So oh, this wow. happened a number of years ago, but it was that was really something. <laughs> yeah, I know that some of the uh, some of the recent like mask mandates and whatnot in the Lewiston City Council meetings have been getting a little out of hand. Oh yeah, with the public yeah. and everything. And and speaking of that, I mean, obviously we're speaking over Zoom and not in person. Um, but one thing that kind of <clears> stuck <throat> out to me was it, there was a smallpox outbreak. Um, was it maybe the early 1900s around here? Mm-hmm. And it closed mm-hmm. down all activities, churches, everything. Mm-hmm. It, it closed mm-hmm. down all of those things. And uh, Well, you think the, you think we're having a little bit of stay at home now. When the Spanish flu hit in the fall of 1918, the town was locked down. There were towns, there was a town in southern Idaho that had armed guards at the city limits. I mean, it was, people were panicked. And the only reason Lewiston had such a low death rate is because of the uh, local health off- officer, um, who a woman who was a homeopath and she was a city city health officer. She just said, "Nope, 
no churches, no schools, and that's it. We're closed down. And that, she saved a lot of people. Because there were only in the, about 53, I think, were in, uh, something like that in the Spanish flu. And that's about a third of the death rate of any place else in Idaho. Some little town was just, I have a friend of mine who just died a few, a few weeks ago. Uh, she was three at the time. And I asked her about this. She said, I can remember my mother talking about it, and I can vaguely remember. She said it was every house had somebody sick in her town on the prayer. It ravaged the Camas prayer. Just something unbelievable. That's how they they actually had fun. The major hospitals got started out there because they had to have hospital care. They couldn't, people didn't make it to Lewiston. They didn't survive the train trip. So they had to do something. Wow. Yeah, and you know, um, if, if they can get through that, then we can definitely get through this. And we it, can get through it. It, it my is. Mother-in-law, my mother in law survived it too. Yeah. My mother in law was born in 1910. And she would tell me how when, when she got the Spanish flu, her aunt uh, saved her life by wrapping her up and putting her next to a hot stove and just cooking it out of her. She said, I thought it was going to boil. But she said it saved her life. And she said she remembers the boxcars, the railway boxcars, full of coffins. Oh, wow. Because it was, it was, you know, got cold. They couldn't bury anybody. And so they just had to store them in boxcars. Oh, man. All they could do. Wow. Pretty, pretty, pretty bad. Oh, yeah. 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 And, uh, you know, I, I unfortunately came down with uh, COVID-19. You did? I I did, unfortunately. Okay. Uh, I've had a number of friends. I'm glad to hear that you're okay. Yeah, despite my... I'm feeling feeling, feeling great now, but yeah, despite my best efforts with wearing masks and distancing Uh and everything, I still... And I still don't know where I got it from. It was... It was... uh, It wasn't fun. I can see how people die Uh from it, but... It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't anything like that, like what you're describing. <laughs> but, well, but at any rate, it's it, it's still definitely something that people should take seriously, and it is it is awful. Well, this is something for historians to really codify, because now they're finding the more research that's going on, they're finding that it entered the, the American population much earlier than people thought, <laughs> because last fall, in November. Uh, people were coming into the clinics here with a mysterious form of the flu. My wife got it. She was deathly ill, ran a fever for 10 days. We could not get it down. Mm-hmm. Heavy cough, all of the symptoms. It was COVID-19. So, you know, they talk about, well, it was hidden in China. I, historians will sort this out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Once you start looking at the epidemiology of it and the, and the spread of it, we're finding it was in the United States much earlier than many people think. Mm-hmm. And that's that's exactly what I thought at the outset of this is this is going to keep uh, grad students busy for that's decades. Right. All the that's epidemiologists, right. as you said. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they are really going to have to study this because they missed the first clues. And by the time they really understood what it was, it was full blown. The horse was out of the barn. Right, right. Well, uh, just to get us back to the book here, um, were we talking about a book? <laughs> <laughs> hey everyone, just wanted to take a quick break to tell you about our new Patreon account. That's right, OSP fans, you can now directly help us fund this show and get access to exclusive content. For more information and to learn how you can support the show, head to patreon.com slash oldspiralpodcast. Now back to the show. 
Um, what were some of your favorite, I guess, uh, stories or instances in the, in the book? Um, maybe like what, what, what started it? What was the first one for you? Well, there were some chapters that I thought I had just a real grasp of, and that was the one on Ludovic Fitch. It was supposedly, uh, had, I thought was shot. I don't know now. I mean, I'm, now, I'm still researching it. I'm finding I'm not sure exactly what happened to the guy. They found his, his headstone way out of town, up where the water reservoirs, up above four dealerships. There are those big, big water things. They found his grave up there. Well, I thought, that's just too spooky not to do because he'd been buried there for 40 years when they found it. But the story I think that really got me started was the story about Jewel Fring, the young guy who killed his boss. He'd been working for him in the harbor. He got hurt. And he was put a, a bug in his craw, so to speak. And he came back and pulled a pistol on him. Right in Main Street, right at New 6th and Main. I, I'll go down New 6th and Main and said, it happened right here. Well, right and right his uh, his wife and what three or five month old daughter were. Baby in was five months. Yeah, yeah. baby was just just infant. She died in two thousand seven. She lived a long time. The little girl. Yeah, she not lived eighty years. So he pulls a. Here's Lester Gifford comes into town with his wife Anna. He's at New Sixth and Main. It's Christmas shopping, and here Jewel. Jewel. His real name was Richard, but he went by his middle name Jewel. Um, oh, I gotta tell you. Just that kind of reminds me. There are some odd stories that kind of crop up, but I'll come back to this. Some people in Lewis's history had some odd names. Yeah, they did. <laughs> um, P.R. Beavis is one of the really famous names in Lewiston because he was in real estate. Very big. The Ray J. White Company, which is real Ray J. White. Ray J. White was P.R. Beavis's nephew, came to visit him in state. So anyway, so his first name was Pearl. Pearl Beavis never went by it. Then there was um, uh, Homer Lips, the Lips Pool. Oh, yeah. Well, that's named for his wife, Alberta. We called her Bert. I knew her. But I never knew Homer. I just never met him. But his middle name was Hiawatha. That's pretty (laughs) crazy. So here we got Jewel Frank. So Jewel Frank's been out of shape. He pulls a gun on Lester, forces it into the Eidenhoff Gross uh, Pharmacy, which the building still stands. It's on the corner of New 6th and Main, okay, on the southwest corner. He forces him into the pharmacy. He says, you're going to write a countercheck. Now, in the old days, when I was a kid, you could go into a place and write what's called a countercheck. It wasn't a check from your bank. It was a check that you could cash any place off. It was on the counter. That's what they said. So you could write, he says, I'll write a countercheck. And the pharmacist says, well, go ahead and write it, Lester. Nobody's going to cash it. They know this problem. You guy's got a gun on well, they'd already called the police. A guy had seen this, and he called the police station down on 3rd. So that takes a while to get downtown. So here's Lester, here's a Jewel with a gun on Lester, and a police officer steps in. Now, this police officer had been a used car salesman, and he, now he's the police officer of town. And would go on to be police chief. No training. He was finally forced out of office. He had his house bombed one time. So you can imagine during Prohibition. So anyway, he steps into the pharmacy and and, and, uh, uh, Jewel sees him and starts shooting and kills Lester Gifford, shoots him right in the back and kills him right there. And the pharmacist lunges at him and he turns and shoots at the pharmacist, who was the founder of the owl drug. Most people know who that is. He he split up with his partner. He went on to form other, other pharmacies. And the bullet went right up 
right up his sleeve and out up the top of his shoulder. Any inches, it would have killed him. And they finally wrestled uh, Jewel to the ground. Well, Jewel goes to jail. They put him in the jail at the courthouse, and they convict him quickly. This trial's over and done with. He and a couple of guys escape out of jail. They break out, take off. Well, Jewel comes back to say goodbye to his folks. <laughs> his dad says, you're not going to any place, boy. You're going to go turn yourself in. So he does. And he gets, goes to prison. So and you remember the thing. He goes to prison, goes in for a shave in 1921. Right. The barber can grab him. He pulls out a straight razor, holds his own head down, and slits his throat ear to ear. He kills himself right there in the prison barber shop. Now, that story really intrigued me because I had read little blurbs about it. But when you really start to look at it real thoroughly, you find out it was tragic all the way around. Just it's like I said, his wife, Virginia, never spoke of the event again in her life. Her daughter said she never, ever heard her speak about it. Yeah, it was really sad. Um, and then Jewel, of course, he had hurt himself on on uh, Lester's farm and wanted yeah. his uh, hospital bills paid for. And sure, Lester was going to do it. He said, "That's fine. I'll take care of it." But he now he's he had a burr under his saddle, and he just was not going to be dissuaded. He wanted his money right there, right? And he ended up going to prison for it. So what what era of time would you say was the most wicked in Lewiston's past? Is there like a certain stretch of decades or or are they kind of scattered? Well, Lewiston's always been pretty ornery town. There's no doubt about that. I mean, I think it has kind of a veneer of civility all the way through. But it, it obviously came to a head in 1942 when uh, during World War II where they just couldn't take it anymore because the guys were coming in. You, you know, R&R for the weekend here and coming back on Monday. And they were so bad, they had to go to the infirmary because they were so drunk up or or liquored up and still you know hung over and had been hanging out in brothels and had venereal diseases. And, and then to tell the story, I don't know if you, old Ed Hoffman, Dr. Hoffman's stories. I should tell the story. <laughs> Ed Hoffman was a doctor here in Clarkson for many years. He's dead. I know his daughter real well. He was a funny guy. Well, when he graduated from the University of Idaho, he came and took a job here in Lewiston as a health officer. And this is during just the very first part of World War II. And he was ahead of kind of watching over the local brothels. There were at least 18 in town. You know, 18, can I say whorehouses? I guess that's what it is. Right? Yeah, you can say what you want. Yeah, well, it, that's what the term is. I have nothing to do about it. Uh, bordellos, there's another word for it. So he was, he was in charge of a public education concerning STDs. And Ed told a story. He was down at the Bollinger Hotel, which was burned down years ago. It's, um, uh, I don't know what's there, a financial center there now. Or a big hotel. And he was in the, there's a big restaurant in the hotel. It was right on D Street, right facing on D. And he was doing this talk with his back to the window. And he had this big board and he was writing all and showing charts. And, and all the men had to come in and you know, maybe they'd been sent. They'd been sent by the court to have to have to go through this class. So he kept wondering why the guys were looking around him, not at him, but around him. And when he finally turned around, he said, "I looked up and across the street in Morgan's Alley on the second floor. This is the most notorious port brothels in town. <laughs> second floor of, the boom of Morgan's Alley." There was a prostitute on the landing, the fire station. 
Kate Lynn. And she was doing a strip tease. And all the guys were watching her across the street. Then one time he had a meeting with a local, uh, I'm almost positive, the Seminicum Club, because it was, he said it was the, the women of, of substance in town, you know, the doyens of the community. And he was explaining how bad prostitution was. And the ladies were getting more and upset about it. They were just, well, I like to use the expression, they, they were getting the vapors, you know, like, oh, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? And they said, Dr. Hopper, what are we going to do? And it, he said, I thought about this for a minute. He said, what am I going to do? I got a good straight question. What am I, how am I going to respond to this? I just told them to go home and talk to their husbands because they own the buildings. <laughs> and he, <laughs> this big gasp because you know the the big businessmen in town owned all the buildings with these brothels. Right. They were making money off them. They were renting them out, and it was legal. I mean, it, it said in the city city charter it wasn't. You know, the city ordinance again. But people looked the other way. I know for a fact that because a guy told me, and I'd heard this before. But a guy told me he said, "I want to show you something, Steve. This is what my, I was sitting with my dad one time in a building. I didn't know what it was." It was just downtown. And a guy came in, and my dad was talking to a police officer. They were friends. And a guy walked in and handed my the police officer a dollar bill, and it was folded very oddly. Okay? I've seen it folded this way. A very odd folding. And he handed the police officer, and the police officer said, okay. And the guy went on upstairs. Well, it was a coded way to pay off the police to go into the brothel. They were at the front door. Yeah, and I, uh, I think I read that. Uh, I think I read that the uh, what's it called the uh, the well, the prostitutes or the madams or whatever would would they just pay a monthly fee sure. to yeah. the police? They come in, they round them up, they come in, and we got on the police. We got the police blotter showing it, whole list of women's name. They paid them. They paid the five dollar fine and went back to work. But the see the city could say, well, we're trying to control it. <laughs> so then they'd make the money and they'd just go back to work. One of the situations with Dr. Hoffman was he started doing blood tests. And he did two, a blood test on two prostitutes who, who tested positive for STDs. He wanted to get them off the street. When he came back to check on them, the police chief had changed their names and put them into another brothel. It was that <laughs> kind of corruption. So was it uh, like mob-style extortion? Of these no. of these madams, where they said, "If you don't pay," no, I, I don't. I've never seen any evidence of that because the madams were very, they were wealthy. They had beautiful homes up here on Normal Hill. I mean, I could point out a couple of the houses on Normal Hill that were the, the madams on them. And they, when they when it got a little too hot, you know, the police got a little too pushy. The madams would move up here on Lewiston Hill on, on Normal Hill and buy a house, turn it into a little little facility. And we, we know that because a guy came to me one day and he said, Steve, I've got to tell you this. We're just renovating a house over by the cemetery. And we took off the old uh, the old uh, uh, paneling and underneath were the raunchiest wallpapers you've ever seen. <laughs> it was a wonderful. That's <laughs> right over here by the cemetery. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I, get, I get a lot of little tidbits people will tell me. You know, they go in and renovate a home. And, well, one gal came up. She came in one day and she said, Steve, we just put some new cabinets in my kitchen. We found this behind the cabinet. And it was an invitation to a Ku Klux Klan meeting. Oh, wow. In the Temple Theater, which is owned and operated by the by a Jewish family in Lewiston. Now, that was irony. Wow. <laughs> huh. 
Jeez. Uh, I mean, there's so many twists and turns. You know, this Lewis is not much different than a lot of other towns. Think of Wallace, Idaho. I mean, Wallace. You have to think about Wallace. Wallace was a wild town when I was in that. Everybody knew about Wallace. And Lewis had at least calmed down just a little bit. A lot of that moved to Clarkston. That's why we had Charbonneau's and down on Bridge Street. They were, they call them massage parlors. But it just kind of moved out of town in Clarkston. But I don't know. In the last part of the prostitution, I brought up how the police chief in Lapway got arrested. Right. He was right. <laughs> he got arrested for for hiring women to for into prostitution. He was the police <laughs> chief in Lapway, <laughs> in the late seventies. Oh my goodness! So, do you think there was sort of the seedy underbelly element because of the nature of the just the blue collar lifestyle and? And people kind of passing in and out, or what? What was it that made made that CD element thrive here? Well, Lucent's always been kind of a blue collar community. Mm-hmm. You know, we have a college here, and we have good schools, but you've got the mill, and it's always been kind of average work a day, small business. And if, in the uh, you still see them, but I'll tell you, there was a time when you drive Mill Road in East Lewiston, and it was one bar after another. They were get, catching the mill workers before they got home. Mm-hmm. It was unbelievable. Just all down through there. So, you know, that, that's kind of gone now. We, we don't have as many bars as, you know, we have, because we have liquor licenses now. And liquor licenses weren't, weren't the pattern for a long time. It, after Prohibition, that's when it really got started. People could just about open anything. As long as you get the liquor, you could sell it. Right. right. Wow. So we had our own brewery here, too. It was a big brewery. Finally oh, yeah. closed down, yeah, down uh, where Sunoco is downtown. Uh, there was a big brewery there. <clears throat> closed down in 1913 because of prohibition. The Weisgerber family owned it, and then it was sold off to Mason Ehrman in the 1930s. It burned down. The whole building burned down, and they had re- the buildings there today are just really replaced. Big, big spread right there. Yeah, they were a big brewery because and you had, big uh, towns of any size would have their own brewery because uh, beer was hard to store. You know, beer was a drunk. Uh, they drank it not cold like we do today. That's right. Beer. Yeah, yeah. It was a what they call steam beer, and it, it's an acquired taste. I'll tell you. Uh, but that was yeah, the Weisgerber family. They first brewery in Idaho, right here in Lewiston. Well, and there's kind of a funny uh, story. It's I'm sure it's unverified of of uh, one of the Weisgerbers and um, Weinhard Henry Weinhard coming mm-hmm. over. That is true. Is it true? They were they were associated. Yes, that is absolutely true. Yeah. And then they had uh, they had it trouble. Kind of split up. What, what uh, they with the coin flip to see who it went kind of, where? Yeah, split up the territory. Yeah, that's what. Why yeah. not went to Oregon and Weisgerber's went to Idaho? That's right. Yeah, there there was a connection. There was a definite connection. Oh, that's really neat. We've talked about that in a previous episode. I enjoy brewing beer, and we've had. Uh, um, Pete Broyles from Riverport in to oh, do an yeah, episode. Yeah. Sure. So we've talked about that a little bit before. Um, they had trouble with a fire, and then they also had an ice house for a while. Was that they right? Did. And then they brought their own ice machines in. It was a major, major investment. About 1901, pretty close to that. That was that was technology at the forefront, you know, to bring that kind of stuff in here. Right. Well, we've mentioned a couple of the uh, the buildings and, and even houses that people find stuff in. And I noticed that you've got a lot of great pictures in the book. 
And um, some of them are pictures of buildings that I think are still around today. I mean, there's a few that I recognize, wow, yeah. like the North Idaho Children's Home. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the uh, I think the old Lewiston Morning Tribune building and the Mark Means building, are they still here? The, uh, the, the Tribune building was on 4th. And that, that whole area right there is gone. Oh, okay. But the Mark Means building is still there, and it was built in stages. But uh, the oldest building in Lewiston that's really still being used for any purposes is the Center for Arts and History. And that building, for a commercial purpose, there is an older home here. And that's the Credit Union on 9th Street, 9th and Idaho. That was a home. That was a residence down on Main Street for a long time. They cut that building in half and moved it down there. It was a funeral home for many years. When I was young, I went to many funerals. There. So, um, but the uh, Center for Arts and History was a was a, a hardware store. It was called the Great Bargain Store, and then it was a first security bank for many years after 1946. That was my bank uh, for you know all the way through school into when I was young, young married man. That's where we banked right there. Oh wow! That still stands. That dates from. They were finishing that in 1882 and 1883. And that's about the time that the house on 9th Street was built to pretty close. So what are some of your favorite old buildings that uh, you, that are still around? Well, I think what, <clears throat> the problem with old buildings is what's on the inside. What have they done to it? Uh, the, the, the Grostein home at 9th and Idaho has, in my estimation, been a little too renovated, a little too much. It, it's a lot, you know, it's the building, but that's about all. And there have been some homes that were moved from downtown that were so drastically changed that you can't recognize it. The, uh, the RC Beach home that was on 10th Street was moved up on Normal Hill on Prospect Boulevard, but you'd have to know the house to even recognize it. There are some homes that are really quite good. Um, some of the old Queen Anne's are beautiful. Uh, example is a Breidablick. That's the house that overlooks town. It's just on the other side of St. Stan's. You have to go on to 7th Street, right down the end of 7th, right on the brow of the hill. Oh, I it's see. A, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a big bungalow. I shouldn't say a Queen Anne. It's, it's a bungalow home. But we do have some beautiful Queen Anne's, which have the big wraparound porches. Some of those have been restored quite nicely. Uh, in terms of uh, the exterior of a building, I think uh, Reed Hall is quite nice. But we don't see Reed Hall as it originally looked. That what we see today at the college, they put the tower back on, remember the flagpole? That was originally, but the, the building originally had another floor. It was three stories high, and it's only two today. So we don't see it in its full glory. And there was a whole wing that went to the east, almost clear to 6th Street. It burned in 1917. Burned it, just gutted it, burned it right to the ground. So we don't really see how beautiful the building was. And it was meant to be what we see today, plus another wing. So you can imagine how imposing the building would, would have been if we kept So those are quite nice. Um, they are trying to keep a lot of the buildings. Uh, uh, Mark Alexander has done a lot of work. You know, mm-hmm. They're working on the old Odd Fellows Hall next to the Liberty Theater is one. Uh, the old Commercial Trust Bank with the curved glass. It's a blue lantern today. The little coffee house. Right, that yeah. Was Trust Bank. That dates from, I think, about 1905, if I remember correctly, pretty close to that. Oh, that was the Hurlbutts on that, uh, the children's home. That was the Hurlbutts built that house, and that was the bank. So they were pretty well healed. 
But yeah, there are a lot of little places here in town. I I know we did an episode on uh, the Spiral Highway, and or and that was that was really cool because I thought, hey, we're just going to learn a little bit about the old Spiral Highway, and I found out that you know a lot about E. H. Libby. And uh, Van Arsdal, who was the yeah. principal guy Cassie's who made Van Arsdal. it. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of good names. Yeah. Um, but w- what I found out about all that and then the Charles Francis Adams namesake yeah. at the high oh, school, yeah. and he sent money over right? from Boston. And that well, was all really still sits on the hill, you know. Uh, uh, across, who's... across all, the Clearwater, all the Clearwater, north side of the Clearwater, the old house that he built for his boys still stands up there. Oh, who, who's, who built it? Charles Francis Adams built it for his sons. Oh, really? Yeah, they came here. They had polo. They had polo teams here. Oh, wow! They polo here during World War One and before. Well, I yeah, was going to say uh, Van Arsdal's house on Fifteenth. I mean, you wouldn't mm-hmm. think anything driving by it. I went and looked at no, it. No, you wouldn't. But it's it's uh, you can imagine it would have been pretty cool back in the yes. day. Yes. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. But the fact that Charles Francis Adams' kids, I mean, you got to one up me a little bit, but uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's really cool. I always. Yeah, he, uh, he invested real early in the community because even in the 1890s, he was he was investing in the community. He got he wanted to. The city came to him about they were doing something. He said, "You either I won't put an, another." He basically said, "I won't put another nickel into your town until you finally clean up your streets because they were dirt. Nothing was paved. Right. You know, right. Just, if it rained, you, you just slopped your way through it." He said, "No, no, no. We can't do that. I'm not investing anymore." <laughs> he said it a little more bluntly than what I. But those guys, um, Libby, and they they were responsible for bringing water to Clarkston and eventually Correct. making it livable. Yeah, yeah. 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 Edgar Libby, Edgar Libby's daughter, uh, Grace, married uh, John Volmer's son. Oh wow! Austin. Yeah, the two families intermarried, and of she course, she went on to become a famous California artist. Oh, neat. Yeah. Um, and of course, Charles Francis Adams, that was, you know, John, John Adams grandson Correct. or something. So that's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, a long legacy. So we go into yeah. thinking we're going to learn about a road and we find out all these connections to it. And it was really fun. Well, you, you know, there was a road up the hill even before that. Oh, sure. Sure. Back I, in the, the old Silcott road. That's right. Yeah. And there's still, that's been surveyed. Um, and, uh, Earl Bennett, who was the Dean of the school of jail, um, Geology, not geology, mines, School of Mines, University of Idaho. He was dean for years. He's gone the whole way and, and GPSed it and everything. There's still vestiges. And then, just lo and behold, a little museum in Genesee sent me some pictures and said, we don't know exactly where this is. It turned out it was showing uh, a, way, a, a buggy going up the old Silcott Road, up close, not more far, right up next to it. And you can see the road, surface of the road, the little, little uh, bridges they build across the draws, you know, in order to go up the hill. So it was uh, really quite a nice discovery. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of history, a lot of cool old houses and buildings, and mm-hmm. it's really neat. And um, again, I you know, reading through your book, it was fascinating. There's a lot of really interesting stories. I think it's one of my one of my favorite ones is kind of funny. It was at the end of a chapter. It was of a of a Chinese man who had. Um, he had sent a photograph, a mm-hmm. quite revealing photograph to yes. one of his, uh, what he thought was a lady friend, uh, yes. who turned out to possibly have blackmailed him. That's exactly right. Yeah, she <laughs> set him up. She came in and wanted it and gave him the money to send it. And then when he did, the police came and got him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a plant all the way. Yeah, it seems like there was quite a lot of that happening at that mm-hmm. time. Yeah, so that's yeah. really interesting. <laughs> 
Oh man. Yeah, it seems like Lewiston was uh, well, and like you said, at that at that in that area, that just there was a lot of scamming and flim flammery oh, yeah. that, that yeah. went on. Well, we kind of, there used to be an expression that they were on the make. And right. they're, how are they going to make some money? They're in it for, that's why we had so many wealthy families living here. I mean, they're just you know hugely wealthy families. And a lot of the old homes are, are gone. We don't see the beautiful you know, mansions that were here. One of the mansions we have today is at the top of the 9th Street grade, where, across the street from the Civic Theater, Old Civic Theater. That's the old R.C. Beach home. His first name was Royal. Royal Clyde Beach. And he went by Clyde. I don't know why. I'd go by Royal Clyde. <laughs> but anyway, that's the old beach home. And that was that was quite a bill. That was 1916. We think it looks like it's older, but it's not. 1916. The house across the street, which is, I think it's Weibark Financial. That's 1912. That was a Kettenbach home. And so you can see the big money moving up from downtown. Right. Uh, Kettenbach was involved in that uh, postal fraud scheme, too. He gets some, yeah, he had he, some bonds the, taken from him. That was the, the old man. That was senior. And his son, Junior, had to be pardoned by Woodrow Wilson to keep him out of Leavenworth. Oh, wow. He, there was a big timber fraud. And the, the boy got just about did 10 years. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's a whole story in itself. Yeah, sounds like it. So are those homes gone just due to progress or fire? Because I know that, you know, downtown Lewiston has been plagued by many, many fires. Oh, yeah. I would have loved to have seen a lot of the old homes downtown because the house at 9th and Idaho, where the credit, credit union is today, was not unusual. There were a number of homes, and I know this because of fire insurance maps. In fire insurance maps, they would draw the footprint of the house, and you can see repeatedly homes of the same size and design all over the area from about 9th Street to 11th Street, which is pretty much industrial commercial today. But that was quite a res- residential. But they were all torn down, burned down, and people just didn't want them anymore. They were old homes. Mm-hmm. And so I have records of houses that were beautiful houses. Some pictures I have of them. That I have a picture on Prospect Boulevard that was purposely torn down, had turret, beautiful, uh, late Victorian. They tore it down purposely to build the house that sits there today in the 30s. Now, wow. I, the house is only about four years old, and they just tore it down. That's no, not not modern enough. So. And the house there today is beautiful. But, boy, the one that was there before was something. Well, Dr. C.C. Phillips' home. <laughs> well, it was a really great book. Um, I know I really enjoy checking out the Facebook page you manage. That's Historic mm-hmm. Lewiston, Idaho. I highly recommend people to take a look at that. You're, you're posting a lot of these pictures and stories mm-hmm. up there too. It, it's really interesting. And I just want to thank you again for, for coming in and talking with us about this book. And we'll have to have you back another time to talk about more books and, and other fun stories sure. you have. Cause I mean, this barely scratches the surface still. Well, there's, there's a lot out there. I've just, I, and I don't try to keep it in my head. I go back when you said, you want to talk about Wicked Lewis and I thumb through the book to make sure I refresh my brain. So I could, remember names here and there and dates here and there because everything just kind of gets submerged by something new. Yeah. Well, and like you said, it's, it's part of a, a whole story. I mean, you reference other books of yours in there uh-huh. and, and like uh-huh. you said, it's one kind of big, long narrative. It's not just, you know, encapsulated in this one book. Well, it's, uh, uh, what's the, uh, one of the quotes I had in one of the chapters, we can listen, never think you've seen this, the end of anything. That's right. <laughs> That's, That's exactly right. True. Well, guys, nice talking to you today. 
I'm, I'm glad you're feeling better after the COVID. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah me as well. You know, I've had some friends that have had it here, and they're slowly getting over it too. So yeah, it's, uh, I don't, I don't wish it. Right. You know, right. Anyway. Well, again, well, thanks for inviting me. Absolutely, and we we as Brian said, we hope to have you have you on again in the future, and uh, okay. it would be great to discuss uh, more history of the town. Okay, we'll do something special, maybe uh, athletics or something like that. Oh, that'd, that'd be, be great. Fun. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Awesome. Right. Well, thanks for uh, everyone listening, and uh, we'll see you next week. This episode of the show is brought to you by our Patreon subscribers. Thank you so much to all of you for supporting the show. If you would like to become a Patreon subscriber, head over to patreon.com slash oldspiralpodcast. That's going to do it for this week, but the shows are not over. Get caught up on the backlog of episodes if you haven't already, and thanks for listening.